Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Climate Ready. I'm joined, as always, by my colleague and co-host, Alex Maroner, and we have got another great episode coming up with a little bit of a twist this time. So recently, Climate Ready went on the road as we headed to Stockholm for the 2019 World Water Week. We did some on-site interviews for today's episode, bringing in three very insightful guests to discuss issues around urban water resilience. Real quickly, for anyone who is unaware of World Water Week, it's an annual conference hosted by the Stockholm International Water Institute that brings together experts from the world's scientific, business, government, and civic communities for keynotes and panels and all sorts of events. This year, around 4,000 people took part under the theme of Water for Society, Including All. With a bit of planning and a bit of luck, we were able to pull today's guests out of the enormous crowds to sit down for a conversation around a project known as the City Water Resilience Approach and some of the specific efforts underway in cities across the globe to build resilience around water shocks and stressors. First, we'll hear from Martin Schuler and Louise Ellis of the global engineering firm Arup, where they form part of the leadership team behind the ongoing City Water Resilience Approach project. After learning about some of the background and how the approach works, we sat down with someone from the other side working for one of the cities that's actually in charge of implementing the methodology. We talked to Hardeep Anand from Miami-Dade Water and Sewer Department in the U.S. state of Florida. Lastly, we're really excited to announce that we've partnered with the World Youth Parliament for Water for our Climate of Hope segment in order to keep bringing you fresh stories and insight from younger generations. We wrap up the episode as Joyce Mendez from the Climate Reality Project gives her perspective on how we as a global community can and will become more climate ready. With that, let's dive into the episode. Climate Ready is a product of AGWA, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de. Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Climate Ready. Ingrid and I are coming at you from World Water Week in Stockholm. We thought we'd take the opportunity to pull someone out of sessions and seminars to cover a project we've been hearing about for a while now. That's right, Alex. So today we are joined by Louise Ellis, a chartered civil engineer with the water team at Arup, as well as Martin Schuler, the London Water Group leader and project lead for the City Water Resilience Approach. Right now at World Water Week, uh, we are focusing on the theme of water for society, including all. So rural areas and similar uh, smaller towns are important for addressing water challenges, but cities are really at the front line uh, of this challenge and offer great potential for impact. So climate change and demographic shifts are really intensifying existing problems um, and also creating new ones as well. With around 55% of the population currently living in cities and an estimated 2 billion new urban residents estimated by uh, 2050, 
there is immense need for tackling urban water issues. So we thought it made sense for today's episode to focus on a new tool called the City Water Resilience Approach, which is aimed at helping cities collaboratively build resilience to local water challenges. First off, Louise and Martin, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thank you very much, Alex and Ingrid, for having us. Really pleased to be here. Well, to make sure we kick things off on the right foot, would you like to maybe expand a bit on my super short five-second summary of the City Water Resilience Approach? The CWRA uses this five-stage approach to bring multiple stakeholders together to diagnose the strengths and the weaknesses of the water system using a series of quantitative and qualitative indicators, and then bring all of the stakeholders together to develop this collective action plan to address them. Excellent. So could you give us a little bit of a background and uh, tell us where did the idea for this first come from? Sure, Ingrid. The concept was actually first developed at World Water Week two or three years ago. Oh, nice. It was between a number of partners, Arup, the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Bank, and University of Massachusetts Amherst. And the premise really was that water um, is the master variable in cities. Um, it's fundamental to the resilience of cities, and 80% of cities cite too much, too little, or too polluted water as one of their key challenges. And so the idea was that there was a need for tools and approaches to support cities to improve their water resilience and to build on existing approaches, both in the city resilience space with things like the City Resilience Index and the City Resilience Framework, and also from the water utility space in some of the work that had been done primarily on operational resilience in those areas. So three years ago, we went back to first principles. So we were set a challenge to look at urban water resilience here in Sweden, Stockholm World Water Week. But what we didn't want to do is take anything for granted. So we went back to the literature. We started to build that understanding about what urban water resilience is about, including actually what the definition of urban water resilience and how the interaction between cities and their catchments and how important that is to understanding uh, urban water resilience. So you mentioned some of the original founders or co-creators of the idea. What are all the groups involved and some of the cities that are involved as well? Sure, Alex. I always have to write myself a list for this part. Uh, it's a list as <laughs> There's well. a lot. <laughs> so it, it, it's developed in partnership with Arup, the Stockholm International Water Institute, and 100 Resilient Cities, and, and Your Good Cells Agua. We've worked to develop the framework in partnership with eight cities, so Greater Miami and the Beaches, uh, the city of Cape Town, Amman in Jordan, Mexico City, Greater Manchester in the UK, and Kingston upon Hull also in the UK, uh, Thessaloniki and Rotterdam. The project's supported by two great organisations, the Resilient Shift and the Rockefeller Foundation, who are both in the space of trying to improve capacity around resilience and and share resilience knowledge and best practice. And then the project has a great steering group of those founding members from two or three years ago. And so the World Bank, 100 Resilient Cities, and UMass Amherst, and the Resilient Shift. Excellent. That's a pretty powerful group of people. It is. It definitely is. (laughs) That's fantastic. A lot of brains there. So, Martin, you mentioned something in, when you were speaking about understanding the connectivity between cities and their catchments. And I'm wondering, this is obviously it's a city approach to things, but since you are focused on catchment level issues, can you talk a little bit about how that process evolved or why you decided to focus there? So if, if I go back to thinking about cities, so a lot of the um, urban resilience work has been based around cities. Cities, uh, obviously, in terms of the urbanisation, becoming much more important. They have a degree of autonomy, and it's a good starting point to be thinking about urban resilience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Louise mentioned that um, water is a factor in around about 80 to 90% of all cities are facing water challenges. Mm-hmm. So we start to explore water as a key urban resilience issue. But um, 
for that to work, it wasn't the boundary of a city, obviously. Uh, water uh, sits in the catchment, the city sits in the catchment. So it's that interaction between the city and the catchment was, was important. That's what the literature told us, that's what our gut feeling told us, and that's how we built the approach around that, that interaction. Or that city appears in the title, but it actually is the city catchment interaction that's the important element to that. Yeah, lots of upstream and downstream connectivity. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Indeed. It's a very much a system of systems thinking that uh, yeah. would apply to this. I feel like there's probably even just an educational like campaign and component to that as well, I would imagine, just of getting people to understand. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. I mean, a lot of the feedback that we've had is about how important the approach is in just convening all of the actors together so that people understand who is involved in in the water management at a catchment scale. To add to Martin's perspective, cities also have a huge convening power within Mm -hmm. the catchment. I mean, they have the opportunity to bring the different stakeholders together and to have these collaborative discussions around water resilience. I remember from World Water Week last year, we had the manager from Hull speak in one of our sessions and he spoke exactly to this of the power of this group he's able to bring together all these different policymakers from different departments and these sorts of things and people that generally don't have a high level of trust and don't really work together very much on these issues and how powerful this has been just to have those groups come together to say we have this common challenge that we need to address absolutely key it's absolutely key to the approach and understanding that the complexity of those relationships between the stakeholders is super important but equally is who's not around the table that needs to be so part of our work was to understand that rich tapestry of stakeholders but also identify some of those hidden voices and and surface them and bring them into into the conversation and that's where you start really getting some insights in terms of urban water resilience so you're using cities and water as the common ground for bringing together a wide range of, of actors and stakeholders. What's the goal then? What are your objectives within these initial sets of actions? It's about bringing together that diverse group of stakeholders from around the catchment from the outset to develop a shared understanding of the resilience of the water system, both the strengths that they have, but also the challenges that they face, and using that as a foundation to develop a co-owned action plan. Mm. You know, It's really about um, taking account of the systems that are involved and the interdependencies between the other infrastructure and social systems in the city. It's about getting together those different perspectives, encouraging collaboration, ensuring that there's a transparent approach that leads into that, driving action, ensuring that we actually get to move into implementation, whether it be implementation of governance programs as well as implementation of infrastructure solutions, and thinking wider than just the operational resilience of the system. Also thinking about um, resilience in terms of governance in terms of financial resilience, the resilience of the environment uh, and the resilience of communities. Agreed. And just, just reflecting on bringing those stakeholders together from the outset is that the outcomes are going to be that much more strong because you're going to have buy-in at an earlier stage. The voices are heard, right. it's transparent, it's far easier to deliver these solutions once you've got that common voice. So I wanted to get just a little bit more into the actual approach. We mentioned earlier that it's a five-step approach. What's the overview of these five different uh, steps? So we begin with the first step of understanding the system. That's about who's going to be the city champion for the approach, and then understanding both the physical um, water system and spatially, but also in terms of how it connects to other systems. Mm -hmm. And then most importantly, understanding the governance of that system. And the second step is around um, assessing the urban water resilience. 
through workshops with multi-stakeholder groups. Mm -hmm. We use the City Water Resilience Framework, which has around 56 qualitative indicators and 40 quantitative indicators to essentially diagnose the resilience of the city across those four dimensions of um, leadership and strategy, planning and finance, infrastructure and the environment and health and well-being. Mm. And from that we get a good picture of the overall resilience of the city and where those strengths and weaknesses lie. So step three is about developing the action plan. We focus in on those areas where there's a need to improve the resilience and through a series of visioning workshops, again with multi-stakeholder groups, go from uh, looking at a range of opportunities through a prioritisation to um, developing core interventions which have co-owners, supporting actors with um, a programme of works for the next few years, an, an idea of the cost, an idea of the value of them, the resilience value, both the value directly and indirectly as well as a series of measures of success that can be used to reflect on the project. And from there, it's moving into implementation, and and much of that is quite context-specific. And then step five is about evaluating, learning, and adapting. Uh, So that's about that reflection piece, both in terms of the success of the actions, but also how the overall resilience of the water resilience of the city is changing. And then on to learning, I'm going to let Martin talk about the learning between cities and with technical experts. Yeah, so one of the things that whilst we've been developing the the approach, last year we brought together the cities who are within our uh, ecosystem effectively, brought eight cities together. Mm. And the really interesting thing for us that we didn't fully anticipate was that um, there was a lot of learning between the cities and sharing of information. We found that interesting. And for example, experiences around the drought in Cape Town are being shared with Miami and other cities and Hull. So there were certain areas of urban water resilience that um, particular cities have been challenged with. They were able to share that learning and approach. So we were finding that that sort of community of practice was beginning to build around those cities. And we'll be looking and exploring to take that further, seeing how we can actually bring more cities into that space, other practitioners, other actors. So sharing information, because it's part of the um, sort of guiding principles of our work. It's transparent, it's inclusive, it's collaborative. So what we're trying to do is ensure that um, that that learning is shared as widely as possible. And part of that, in the spirit of that work, we are also publishing everything that we're doing. So it's all available on our websites. All the desk study research, all the field study research, that's all available for others to use as well. So in terms of picking these initial pilot cities and projects, was there like a conscious decision to include cities that have diverse climate or diverse hydrology, et cetera, to kind of give a different flavor (laughs) to each of the different case studies? (laughs) Yeah, you're absolutely right. So so if we go back to the beginning of the process that we ran a competition through 100 resilient cities to select our initial pilot cities. Oh, interesting. So, and we were oversubscribed, which is good, uh, but then that meant that we had to make a decision. And so we selected the initial wave of cities based upon a diverse set of challenges, whether it's facing drought, whether it's facing flooding, the size of the city. So what we tried to do was get a broad spectrum, because that was part of the work to see if if we had a universal uh, solution that worked in each of those cities. And so to date, that's holding. And I think we've seen a lot of the challenges, but not everything. So as we move through this work, we'll be learning further. You mentioned, Luis, that data and the desire for data, there's a strong need for that, especially when you're talking to some of the the city managers and people that are implementing this approach. But I wonder, have you all found that the city water resilience approach can be applied in maybe more data or resource scarce regions? 
Exactly, Alex. I mean, we've developed the city water resilience approach in collaboration with the eight cities globally, and they are different sizes and they have different capacities. The approach in in convening stakeholders and having both the quantitative and qualitative indicators gives us a degree of flexibility. For low capacity or data scarce cities, we have the option of using a subset of those qualitative indicators to allow certainly the assessment process to be less resource intense. However, the, the city water resilience approach is an opportunity for cities to identify that they have resource and data um, scarcity challenges and to make a case for those additional resources. So just because a city may be low capacity or may not have a huge amount of data means that in, in actual fact it might be even more valuable for them to yeah, not engage bad. Yeah. in the city water resilience approach so that they can start on the journey of building their resilience. Yeah, just to build on that, I think that that's really an important point because having the evidence behind that decision-making process is important. Yeah. And going through this identifies the importance of information. So in those cities that, that aren't currently collecting that type of information, the value of that is exposed by this process. So since we are here in Stockholm for World Water Week, I did want to ask at least one question that ties directly back into the theme this year of Water for All. You know, cities, generally speaking, are quite diverse, feature a lot of different communities in them with their own sets of values or challenges that they face. And so, you know, you've mentioned, you've touched on it a little bit in terms of the different departments and stuff that are convened, but in terms of just broader stakeholder engagement at different processes, could you just let us know a little bit about what that looks like? Sure, Ingrid. The range of stakeholders who are involved in the fieldwork are not just technical stakeholders, not just city departments. It's representatives from community-based organizations, environmental NGOs, as well as you know the city water and sewer department mm. or a private utility. We had around 700 stakeholders who came together to inform, inform the development of the wow. framework. And in rolling it out and piloting it in Miami and the city of Cape Town, we've had 130 stakeholders involved in the last two months. As you were working through the CWRA process in Miami and Cape Town, how were these 130 or so stakeholders involved, and at which points? So the 130 were the stakeholders who we met face-to-face. We run a, somewhere between one to two weeks of field work in each city, and that consists of assessment workshops, having very open discussions with stakeholders who may have very opposing viewpoints yeah. um, around the indicators. And then we do the analysis on the city water resilience profile on those indicators in city, mm-hmm. which allows us then, towards the end of the field work, to host the visioning workshops and bring everybody together to actually develop the actions and the next steps. And so a newer publication or set of publications really for the City Water Resilience Approach just came out this past March, I believe. Aside from that, what's going on now and what are some of the the planned next steps? So we released the first phase of the City Water Resilience Approach publications in March. That was primarily the approach and the theory. We've now implemented it in two cities. So very shortly within the next month, we'll be releasing the city action plans for Greater Miami and the beaches and the city of Cape Town. Now that we've piloted the approach, we're now rolling it out to several new cities who we're in discussions with and who have expressed an interest. So it's definitely now about ensuring that we can bring as many cities through the approach and and get them cognizant of their urban water resilience as possible. And build up the evidence base and try out new contexts because every city, like you said, has a different challenge to kind of ground truth the approach to and see, can it work here as well? Mm. 
but also just reflect, just bringing others into this space as well. So I mentioned earlier about the um, community of practice is, is bringing other practitioners into this space. So it's sharing that learning as wide as possible and having further interactions because there are other tools out there that we can utilise and, and build into, into this approach. So it's really about that sharing process. So if people want to learn more about the City Water Resilience approach, how can they do that? So you can find out more on the Resilience Shift website about the City Water Resilience approach. And there is an email on there as well to contact Martin and I to find out more and to find out how you can be involved. And we'd be really pleased to hear from anybody listening online. So come and talk to us. Do get in touch if you want to be involved in that community practice and share any ideas, thoughts and best practice that you have. Excellent. Fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you very much. No, thank you. All right. So now after hearing from Luis Ellis and Martin Schuler about the city water resilience approach, rationale, and, and the process, we wanted to continue the conversation around urban resilience, illustrating that the approach is much more than just theory and talk. You've heard that the CWRA is being put into practice in multiple cities. I was lucky enough to track down a key actor in one of those projects who is also here at World Water Week. I'm joined now by Hardeep Anand, who is deputy director at Miami-Dade Water and Sewer Department. And Hardeep, I thought it made sense to start with hearing about the context on how Miami and the beaches first got involved in the process, and maybe how that ties into your philosophy on urban water resilience. Thank you, Alex. And uh, I think we were fortunate to be part of the 100 Resilient Cities funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, and the journey started there. And as, as that journey evolved, the city, the county, actually, the Greater Miami the Beaches, in May of this year released what is called the Resilient 305 Strategy. It had uh, several discovery groups. One of the discovery groups was living with water. In parallel, we were also fortunate to be one of the five countries initially selected to take the City Water Resilience Framework project. And in a very simplistic sense, the framework challenges you to look at water and water governance from a single lens. And we like to call it the one water lens because if you really think about it, whether it's water, wastewater, stormwater, groundwater, all forms of water, right? These are names and nomenclatures that we have assigned, and we end up governing these different nomenclatures of water through different lenses. But when it comes to operationalizing resilience, water has no boundaries, and you've got to start looking at those from a single lens. We talked at length earlier with Luis and Martin about the benefits and challenges of bringing together so many stakeholders in the process. What are some ways that you can structure the dialogue with these stakeholders in order for the CWRA process to lead to lasting governance or management changes? That's part of the communication and part of the education process, right? The challenge always is to break down silos in a spirit of working collaboratively, right? We all, we all know we've got to work collaboratively. I think we all get it. There, there's no problem on that front. The question that emerges is, how are we then getting insights from the collaborative effort? But there is also this thing about fostering an environment of transparency, being able to communicate it very openly so that we then can put some integrated approaches to master planning to say, well, this is how we are going to put long-term plans in place which are sustainable over time. You need to tweak your capital plans and your master plans. They have to be nimble. They have to be dynamic. They have to be adaptable. But they also have to be sustainable over time, right? So I think if these stakeholders come together and if you're able to portray that image in front of them that your long-term vision is this, I think then they start seeing the roadmap. What kind of challenges were you all facing in Miami? What are some of the interventions that you're looking at or proposing or, or implementing, depending on which phase you're at? 
So, you know, from a resiliency standpoint, I think the approach we take is one as it's defined by shocks and stresses. Under the shock and stresses definition that has been put out by the 100 resilient cities, which I think I personally like the most, we've got a bunch of variables. It could be aging infrastructure. It could be threat of emerging contaminants today. We are talking about PFASs. It could be cybersecurity. It could be sea level rise, climate change. And again, I think we don't have the luxury of attending to any one of these challenges on their own, right? Because you're only as strong as the weakest link in the chain. So these challenges, again, have to come together. But the way we are trying to address them is when it comes to aging infrastructure, we obviously have to take care of it because that is where we would end up suffering the most in terms of an impact should we have some sort of a a disaster or hurricane strike us. The aspects of climate change or sea level rise is what I would probably call. There we are hardening our assets where we can. But the long-term plans would be, for example, if we have a pump station in place, And if it's in a low-lying area, we might find in the long term, as it lives its useful life, the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years, a pump station has a lifespan of about 25 years, we would find ways to relocate it to higher grounds. So the good news is that resilience is incremental, right? Uh, We have the time and the opportunity now to incrementally adapt. And I think that's the best we could do, and that's what we are doing while we continue to keep our eyes on the long-term goals where we bring all of these challenges together and integrate them into this long-term vision of the master plan that I referred to. I won't keep you much longer, so just like one last question. What were some of the biggest takeaways for you, maybe personally, in this process, whether it be challenges or opportunities? You know, to me, the biggest takeaway, whether you call it a gap or an opportunity, is we've got to find a way to have conversations on the topic of water resilience in a sustainable environment. What I mean by that is we've got to start embedding these conversations horizontally and vertically within organizations, both in the public sector and the private sector. The private sector obviously brings solutions to the table. The public sector obviously relies on some of those solutions. But I think the conversations need to get embedded in a very granular fashion in a manner that is easily understood by different audiences, but they also need to be embedded in our communities because the communities are the ones who are going to be supporting long-term plans in the end. And I think to the extent we can start doing that, then I think we we would translate the conversation of water resilience into a resilience movement, mm-hmm. right? And I think that is where we need to go. And I say that I use the word movement in a positive sense, in a sense that There needs to be buy-in and ownership at the community level. Government alone cannot change this because there's behavioral change involved in this, whether it's on conservation. There might be a rate increase at some point because it takes money to do things. But at the same time, it calls for innovation to be able to save dollars where we can by bringing in best practices through innovation. And I think it's an ecosystem at the end of the day that to me was a takeaway to say, you know, we've got to create this ecosystem that continues to flourish. Well, we only had just a very short amount of time to hear about all the great work that's being done around Miami and the beaches. If any of our listeners want to hear or find out more, there is a full report on the work that is being done there that's been published by Arup, and we'll link to that in our episode description. So thanks so much for joining us on the show, Hardeep. Pleasure, Alex. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. really good time talking with all three of the guests in Stockholm. 
It was fitting that the theme of the week was about equity and water, and that seemed to be a key tenet of the city water resilience approach. Cities are a powerful target in terms of building or strengthening water resilience, and they're really only becoming more important in terms of demographic trends. In many cases, they have the resources and the motivation to make impactful decisions and actions. If we were only talking about work done inside the geographic confines of a city, that would be missing a big part of the picture, though. Thankfully, this project we discussed was actually more of a catchment-level approach to resilience, looking at all the interrelated systems and the upstream-downstream connections. You know, one stat that really grabbed my attention was that around, you know, 80% of cities are facing some type of water challenge. 80%. So this is, you know, yet another example of why water is so ingrained in such a majority of adaptation and resilience work. The other thing I wanted to make sure that we brought up again was this idea of the convening power of cities and how much of an emphasis is being put into creating a shared vision of water resilience. It's definitely a difficult task, but again, going back to the concept of equity, it's really important to make sure that all voices in the catchment have a seat at the table and not just the people from the utilities and the town hall, because otherwise these projects are just generally doomed to failure. Everybody needs to kind of get on board. And I really liked what Hardeep said about the need to embed these resilience conversations in the public and private sectors and in the communities themselves. It sounds like the city water resilience approach is doing just that. So I'm really excited to see how this develops. As a reminder, if you want to find out more or see how you can become more involved in the project, they are trying to build up a community of practice and expand the approach. We've included some links in the episode description. To conclude the episode, with the help of the World Youth Parliament for Water, we are featuring another Climate of Hope story. Today we're joined by Joyce Mendez, who will talk about a silver lining of climate change, which is the opportunity for a paradigm shift in global governance. Enjoy. Hola. Hello, I'm Joyce from the triple border of Paraguay, Brazil, and Argentina, the cold Iguazu region. I'm an entrepreneur, a World Youth Parliament for Water member, a mentor of the Climate Reality Project Brazil, also co-founder and leader of the youth group of Paraná Basin Tree and of the Paraguayan Youth Network for Water, current intern of the Center for United Nations Constitutional Research. Well, in my community, climate change is impacting an increase of temperature, especially in the variability of the seasons. And as a rural woman working in transboundary water, energy, and food cooperation, I can tell that the neighboring countries are going through the same challenges, especially the heat stress for our region is a very big issue because we're one of the biggest food producers in the world and it's just not about affecting our regional economy but our food security and also our water availability that's why we started a project with the paraguayan youth network for water in order to provide basic education in subterranean waters like the aquifers in guarani language which is the official language in paraguay and of the mercosur region and also we are working in Spanish, either for school students and for farmers, and especially people working in agriculture, in order to protect our waters as the Guarani Aquifer, a transboundary aquifer shared by Argentina, Brazil, Paraguay, and Uruguay. It stands as one of the largest reservoirs of fresh water worldwide, among other aquifers we have in the region. And just regarding climate change, I consider it as one of the biggest challenges we have as civilization and how we will do this paradigmatic transition in a fair, inclusive, but cooperative way. 
climate governance and climate democracy are just two fundamental topics we need to define and to prioritize in the global and national agendas. In the other hand, climate change also represents an unlikely opportunity to change the rules of game, not just to realize the importance of stopping with this obsession with economical growth and human prosperity, and to retake processes like the summa causae, the good living, emphasizing living in harmony with other people in nature. And yes, we are being part of this big transformation. How the Paris Declaration from the Young Climate Ambassadors pointed, in a world of effective climate governance, global governance, resources currently dedicated to national security must be redirected into global security, and in particular, living sustainably on our planet. It should be a human right to enjoy of a healthy environment and it is our duty to protect the rights of the environment for future generations. We know that climate change is a global governance issue and that currently the climate agreements aren't being binding or ambitious enough to limit the increase of temperatures by two Celsius degree. So that's why we consider this a planetary crisis. In this way, the Young Climate Ambassadors Initiative, a project I've been working with the Center for United Nations Constitutional Research, we are looking to empower activists into the diplomacy track to move forward in the creation of United Nations Parliament representing everyone to ensure justice, the creation of a world card with the competency to prosecute environmental crimes, holding states, corporations, and non-state actors and individuals accountable with universal jurisdiction. As the legitimate forum to achieve these democratic ideals, we demand to use the San Francisco Promise, which is a tool in order to convene the United Nations Charter Review and Renewable Process. Thank you very much. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again to all of our earlier guests, Martin Schuler, Luis Ellis, and Hardeep Banand, and a big thanks to Joyce Mendez. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter using at ClimateReadyPod for the latest updates. Until next time. Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.